everybody, and welcome to Coach's Corner. I really love this episode because we're talking to a woman who wrote a memoir about her 25-year relationship with a husband who was a functional alcoholic and also was unfaithful. And this is such an important conversation because I love having experts on, and I also really love people who have become by default an expert in something because of their own personal experience. Now, the best way to be able to talk about something is if you've walked it. And being in a relationship with someone who's functional but dysfunctional can be very, very confusing, especially when there's a lot of love there. And Dana had the courage to, to leave. She had the courage to get out of her marriage, even though there was a lot of love there. And she talks about how difficult that was, but also the relief that she feels now that she's on the other side. And relationships can be so tender and so tricky. And I know a lot of you listening may have just gotten out of a relationship and may now be looking for an actual healthy relationship. Or maybe you've been never been in a relationship and you're looking for a healthy relationship, one that is free of dysfunction and free of addiction. I just want to let you know that we're still enrolling for our Be the Queen program. We did have one class this week, but it's easy to get the recording and join us for the rest of the three months and also be able to join us for the October 12th live retreat. You can go to christinehasler.com slash be the queen, or you can email jill at christinehasler.com. It's an amazing program. We are still offering some partial scholarships and payment plans. So we want to make it work for as many people as possible. I'm so passionate about this program, especially after this interview with Dana. It's really more of a conversation than just an interview. It's so, so important that we, we choose healthy partners from the start. And if we've been in an unhealthy relationship, we do the healing so that we can choose a healthy relationship moving forward and Be The Queen helps with all of that. So again, christinehasler.com slash Be The Queen. So now let me tell you a little bit more about our guest. Dana Killian is the author of Where the Shadows Dance, He Got Sober, I Got Broken, which explores her struggle as she became collateral damage in her husband's self-destruction. After saving him, she realized she also needed to save herself. This is Dana's debut memoir. She's used to writing fiction series. She's known for the Andrea Kellner mystery series. And what a brave and vulnerable step it was for her to write this book. Her book actually comes out in May, which isn't too far away now, Uh, but you can pre-order the book on Amazon. Again, it's called Where the Shadows Dance. Before we dive in, I want to thank my sponsor for this week, which is Organifi. You can get all your yummy Organifi things at Organifi.com slash over it for 20% off using promo code over it at checkout. As I was recording this episode, I was drinking my Organifi Gold. It's their turmeric blend. I love it. I mix it with my coconut creamer and heat it up and it's my delicious snack. Even when it's 85 degrees in March, which it is right now, which is really disappointing. (laughs) I pump on the AC and it's my little treat. I just find it both nutritious and delicious. You can also get all kinds of other other yummy good things, their green juice, their red juice, their immunity boost. Check it out, Organifi.com slash over it, promo code over it at checkout. And now on to my interview with Dana. Dana, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for being here. My pleasure. It's it's all mine. Thank Mm -hmm. you. Your memoir, I just want to start with the title because it's a it's a title that really grabs your attention right away. Where the shadows dance, he got sober, I got broken. It it, it gives me chills reading that. 
And this book was so much based on your experience, which I'm sure that when you were out of the experience, <laughs> the last thing you wanted to do was relive it, but you were inspired to write this book. What inspires you? I didn't start out to write a book. I was journaling as a supplement to therapy. And as I'm an author of fiction, I understood through my journal that there was a book in this journal. I didn't know that I had the courage to write it or at least to publish it, but I felt it was necessary to go through the exercise for my personal healing. And as I was writing the first draft of the manuscript, not only could I see myself more clearly, my situation more clearly, the personal connections between parts of my life, parts of my marriage, how it all kind of flowed and transformed and gelled. But I was also finding that I kept thinking about women that I knew, my mother, my sister, other women that I've known, so many, many women that I've known who have used silence as part of how we operate in the world when difficult things happen to us and how as women, we often are putting ourselves aside mm -hmm. because someone else's needs always seem more important. And I kept thinking about those women as I was writing. And that became my, my turning point from shifting in this is my healing to this might be something I can use to help others. If I can find the courage in myself, not only to get this book polished, but to publish, maybe I can help other women too. Maybe I can show other women that getting on the other side of this pain and this silence can be immensely healing. Mm. So it was part me as an impetus, but it really became, this is how women operate in the world. And if I can find my courage to do this, maybe I can help someone else find a little bit of courage themselves. Mm -hmm. So let's back up and share a little bit about your story. So women really, and the people listening, not just women, but just people listening, have an idea of what you've been through. Do you mind sharing a little bit of your story and how you, you know, sure. <laughs> where that tag, that subtitle came from, he got sober, I got broken. Sure. So I was married uh, for 25 years to a high-functioning alcoholic. It took a great deal of time for me to understand what his problem was because it didn't look like a classic alcoholism, at least not the way I knew it to be. He wasn't stumbling and slurring and being obnoxious. Um, he drank and that drinking was consistent. And the more I started to be concerned about it, the more it became a secret behavior. Mm. But being a high-functioning drunk, the secret became really insidious in him and in our life. No one else outside of us really saw him as a, as a drinker because it wasn't the quantity, it was the constancy of the booze. Mm -hmm. And like all alcoholic situations, this is a one step forward, two steps backward process where you feel like you're making progress and then something happens and you're devastated again. Mm -hmm. And the booze just becomes this thing that is hanging on your shoulder in your family, regardless of how much chaos. And there really wasn't a lot of chaos in our life, but it was there. You're just waiting for something to happen, whether it's, am I, am I monitoring his drinking? Am I 
waiting to see if he's honoring his promises? Am I waiting for something awful to happen? You know, are my kids going to be with him when he crashes the car? All of these things kind of sit with you for a long, long time. Mm -hmm. Eventually, my husband, we reached a point after many, many years where the choice had to be made. You can have me or you can have vodka. Mm -hmm. And he made, that was, you get to a bottom line point eventually in an alcoholic relationship. He made the choice to have me in his life. And he went to, uh, finally went to a rehab, an inpatient rehab center. There, of course, had been numerous therapists. There had been all kinds of conversations, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But there had been no inpatient treatment. He finally made that commitment. And then when he, and, and got sober, but as he was in that treatment center, I then learned that he had also been leading a secret life. Mm. Throughout our marriage, he had had other women an unknown number of women. Mm. So this is where the, he got sober. I got broken because I thought my problem was one thing. And it was that crushing blow that took me to a new place that had me questioning everything that had been true in my life. And I painfully came to the awareness that after saving him, I then had to figure out how to save myself. Mm -hmm. Mm. and how did you (laughs) (laughs) yeah that's that's a good one when I first learned the truth of his sexual behavior it just devastated me I was curled up in a ball on the floor but the one thing that I knew as I tried to struggle with what does this mean who is this man what has been real in our life I would lay in bed every single night with the words repeating in my head, I will not let him destroy me. I will not let him destroy me. And I repeated that to myself because I have known women who experienced trauma in their marriage or in trauma in other parts of their life. And they are never the same again. Mm -hmm. They are permanently broken. They are permanently distrustful. They are permanently hateful of men and afraid to live life. And I didn't know what I was going to do, but I knew I didn't want that. Um, how did I get there? You know, that that is a really interesting but complicated question and a complicated process. Yeah, it's not a one step. You can't if say I, I did this, this, up, and this. Yeah, I understand. It that. isn't. It isn't. Yeah. It isn't. I think ultimately it had to come down to me finding a way to put perspective to his behavior. Obviously, it would be easy to hate him forever. It would be easy to stay broken. Mm. But I, but to do so would mean I also had to discard what I knew was love in our life. I did not live 25-year marriage with a man that I thought never loved me. There was a wonderful quality. So I had that disconnect of this behavior is not loving. Right. But all these things he showed me were. Right. So what's real? What isn't? Yeah, it's such a tough Talk one too. Talk about conflict internal. Oh, yeah, it's, it's so hard. Um, I can imagine because with addiction too, it, it's so, and when yeah. there's alcohol addiction, often there's sex addiction and other addictions. And it's so hard not to take that behavior personally. 
it's so it hard is. not to it make is. that about you because it also, I don't know if it touches on- the marriage. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. And you do feel like the person isn't choosing you. Um, and when you, when you aren't an addict, it's hard to get into the mind of an addict. And often I've noticed people that are addicts, you know, they, they pick the perfect people in terms of partners that often, you know, it, it touches on all our childhood issues. There's, there's so many webs that can be woven here, but you said something that was really powerful in terms of like, it wasn't one thing, it was many things. And I'm sure everyone's path to healing, they can't point to, oh, it was this one thing. But what really struck me is at the end of the day, you just had to choose yourself. You had to make Correct. a choice that it's like, I can't save this person. And I want to talk a little bit about that because like you also said, there was love there and I'm sure you saw his pain and maybe even had thoughts of, oh, if like he could just get better, then we could be better. How did you navigate that experience of wanting to help without falling into codependent patterns, rescuing patterns and, and taking on stuff that just wasn't yours to take on? Well, therapy, yeah. <laughs> obviously that comes in. Educating yourself about the disease. As I said in the beginning, I didn't originally see him as an alcoholic because I didn't understand this concept of what high-functioning alcoholism could be. Mm-hmm. And through reading, through Al-Anon, through therapy of my own, I did come to understand a greater depth of of what alcoholism can be, what it means, what it looks like, or what it can look like. And I understood that his drinking, for him anyway, he was filling a hole inside of himself. And he wasn't there to hurt me. He was hurting himself. The lies he was telling about his drinking were bigger lies that he told bigger lies to himself than he told to me. And I knew all of those things before I found out about his sexual behavior. Addicts are masters at compartmentalizing. Addicts are masters at lying. Mm -hmm. But the lying is not about meanness or cruelty. This is about protecting themselves. Right. They don't want to, they don't want to face this empty hole that's inside them. To face it, to face their lies, to face their behavior, to face how they're hurting others, they have to look at the mirror and see what's wrong and empty and missing in themselves. Drinking is, I view it as, I know many view it as a disease. I view it almost as a symptom of something deeper mm-hmm. and psychological, a hole in a hole within. It can be. I know there's lots of conversation about what comes first. Um, in my husband's case, I believe the hole was there first. Yep. And drinking and the sexual behavior were about tools for him that he could avoid facing the fact that he didn't believe he deserved to be loved. Yeah. Yeah. And no matter how much you loved him, it almost makes it worse (laughs) to have someone loving you when you don't think you're loved because you just keep pushing and testing. Mm -hmm. What a horrible way to live, Mm -hmm. believing that you don't deserve to be loved, to have the thing that you want most in life. And you throw it away because you don't believe it can be yours, even when it's right in front of you, day after day after day. Mm. And so understanding, trying to get into the place, I think that's ultimately where the foundation of what I had to come to grips with before I could understand that I needed to heal too, was to come to grips with 
that 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 reality of what somebody that's got that internal hole is processing and dealing with. It's not about me. It was about him. As awful, it's not supposed to be what marriage is. Right. But that's right. that was the reality for him. Yeah. Do you re- relate to being an empath? Does that term resonate with you? Um, not in the extreme sense. Mm-hmm. I think that I do have part of me that is uh, has a fix-it quality. Yeah. Not in the do it for someone, but in the like a lot of women, we want to be helpful, and it's just devastating to see uh, another human being who is an amazing individual who is not living up to the beauty and wonder of who they are. So walking away from somebody, and I still consider him an amazing man, an amazing man with a problem I can't live with, yeah. but I, 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 it, it's, it is, it is heartbreaking to see someone not live up to who they really are yeah. and to not see themselves the way others can see them. Yeah. Yeah. And I want to, I want to talk a little bit more about how to identify someone that has alcoholism or high functioning alcoholism. I had an ex in my life who definitely had the high functioning. So I can relate a little bit. It wasn't a 25 year marriage. Um, but I, I remember how confusing it was because he was so optimal in some areas of his life and and not optimal in others. And I'll circle back to that in a second, but I want to stay on this thread and ask you a question. So knowing his journey and knowing that he was pushing away the thing that he so wanted the most and sabotaging the thing he so wanted the most love and having that compassion, how did that compassion like not keep you in it? And I'm asking this because I see a lot of people stay in dysfunctional and healthy relationships a little too long because they understand it. They see, they see the person in pain and they have compassion. And so it it's hard to leave because there's so much compassion there. So how did you have compassion, but not let it keep you stuck? Well, I would be uh, mistaken if I didn't say it kept me stuck perhaps longer than I needed to be. But um, for me, the the big turning point was when COVID hit. Mm -hmm. And what that did for me was it took out all of the distractions in our life. There was nothing there but the essentials. Mm -hmm. And what I found for me was this tremendous, tremendous emptiness. Mm -hmm. And I kept thinking back to... Language that had come up in therapy, um, some of these questions that a good therapist will ask you, and they're hard to answer. And the one, the big question being, is love enough? Yeah. And in the in the heart of therapy, what you know intellectually versus into, versus emotionally is a huge conflict, and you can see both sides. As I got into this place of emptiness during COVID, because all of the distractions were pulled out of my life, um, that emptiness, I had to face the reality of, one, this is not going to get better if I continue to stay in this relationship, regardless of the work he is doing, regardless of how hard he's trying, regardless of the fact that 
yeah, I still love him and he still loves me. It's not the same. It will never be the same. But this is as as good as it's going to get. Mm. And that's when I understood that what those boundaries were for me about is love enough. Mm. I will not stay empty for a man. I will not be a shell of myself for that love. Mm-hmm. And that's what that's what was my kick in the ass, for lack of a better yeah. phrase, yeah. to say, I have to take care of me. He can't help me. Yeah. Yeah. Well, he, he couldn't help himself, much less you. Correct. Yeah. He was trying. <laughs> mm-hmm. He was trying, but no, it's it's not. He was too wrapped up in still trying to heal his own hole, his yeah. own emptiness. Yeah. Yeah, which which no one can do for us. And I think that's so important for people who are in relationships where um, they're falling into a little of those rescue or codependent patterns is we can't we can't fill someone else's void. It's such a deep thing from childhood yeah. usually that they have to do on their own. Um, it's really, really challenging. I want to go back to talking about functional alcoholism. Could you describe that a little bit and tell us um, – some signs that we might be with. And, and I know your husband was an alcoholic, but maybe we could expand it to just functional addiction because in in some ways it could look the same. Yeah, I think you're right. I think addiction uh, has lots of forms and it's just a different choice of substance. Um, So in my situation, my husband never allowed his drinking to affect his work. He was kicking it at work. So that was one of the one of the mechanisms that or one of those symbols, those signs, <clears throat> excuse me, um, that we often think of as what a drunk does. They stumble, they slur, they fall down, they get obnoxious, they get fired from their jobs, they get in car accidents. Mm-hmm. None of those behaviors were part of my husband's behavior. They weren't part of our life. He was not violent. He did not yell at me. He passed out on the floor. Mm. What he did when I became concerned with how the um, the, quant- the the frequency of that behavior, and we started those conversations, the next big sign was hiding of the alcohol. And I think this is the most telling sign of for anyone that's considering or wondering about a close uh, a, cl- a partner or close individuals' drinking patterns, are they hiding their drinking? So are you finding empty bottles? I did. Mm-hmm. Are you seeing, are you smelling alcohol when you haven't seen them taking a drink? Are you seeing eyes that look puffy and red? I was, but I didn't see him drinking. And eventually I came to discover that in hiding his alcohol, he was drinking straight out of the bottle mm-hmm. when I wasn't looking. Mm-hmm. He was going to the, you know, going to pick up the dry cleaner and stopping for a shot at the at the bar. It was those, it was the hiding behavior for for us that that really became my telling this man has a very serious problem. Yeah. This is there's no there's no way to there's no way to sugarcoat it the way we often do. And and really what is the line between heavy drinking and addiction? Mm. It's it's to me it's those two things. It is I'm lying about my drinking 
and I'm hiding my drinking. And no matter what the loved ones in my life say, I don't stop. He may stop for a while. He may cover it up. All alcoholics do. Yeah. yeah. But it's the secrecy. The secrecy. Yeah. Yep. And how many children did you have? Do you have? Two. 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 And how did you handle that with them? Do you think they knew? Do you think they felt it? I, I've talked to them about that. Um, one of the benefits of uh, his drink, him being a high-functioning alcoholic is that that drinking was so under the surface. It was not part of the radar. So he was drinking at night after the kids went to bed when they were young. He was drinking in small, small but steady doses as they were older. So this was not a man acting rum rambunctious and Mm -hmm. obstinate in front of the children. They didn't see it. Mm. And when we eventually sat them down, they were, they were in college. And those conversations were then kind of stunning to them. Mm. So on the one hand, it was a, it was a good situation to be in because my kids did not see that what many children of alcoholics see. They didn't live in that chaos, but they were also a little stunned. And they had to try to put some framework to what behaviors have I seen? How do I feel about this now when I, this is such a shock and surprise. Mm-hmm. So it was a good thing, but it, the, the high functioning part also made it harder and longer for him to recognize his problem and for him to get help because he never saw himself as an alcoholic. Mm-hmm. He saw himself as a high functioning career guy who was kicking ass at work. Mm. I can't be a drunk. Mm. Mm. But luckily the kids were not terribly affected. Yeah. Well, and and I think that it's it's an interesting thing because there's a, a great book. I don't know if you've ever read it or familiar with it called Family Secrets written by John Bradshaw. And he talks about even when kids don't know, like it's not told to them, they they f- somehow feel it and they'll end up they'll end up playing it out in their adult life. Um, which is why I so acknowledge you and your ex-husband for sitting down and having that honest conversation with them because it gives them the opportunity to process it and to deal with it Correct. and to not have a secret in their family. Um, so that's, that's very brave. And how did they, how did they handle it? Shock would be the first, <laughs> first reaction. Um, they like, like many of us have to sit with something for a little while and because they're processing, what did I see in my upbringing? What do I think about my parents now? Yeah. What do I think about my father's behavior? What do I think about what my mother might have been dealing with? So, it, you know, at becoming aware of these things uh, in early adulthood gave them an opportunity to come to grips some, with some really big adult issues of having to look at parents as human beings with flaws and challenges and shifting the perspective a little bit about what I thought might've been going on in our life that was different, whether it's mom seemed preoccupied or uh, was there tension at moments that they didn't understand. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but they really weren't, pro- they weren't processing fights they weren't processing watching someone, you know, sitting with a bottle. So that's all good. But it still takes some processing. 
and luckily they had the opportunity to to address some of these things as young adults and and could come back then with questions yeah yeah and that's that's so um wise of you to give them that opportunity <laughs> so that they can process it versus just brushing it under the rug and i think a lot of times parents and not just parents but people in general they they don't share things because they want to not burden or they want to spare people from having to face it or deal with it. But like I said, I think it's so much more empowering to know the truth. And also they were age appropriate and they had the resources to deal with it than to have it kind of on the subconscious level or have it come up later. That truth is liberating. And it gives them an opportunity to um, really look at some stuff in their own life in their twenties, which is a blessing. If only we all did personal development in our teens and twenties. It started then. We'd have we'd, <laughs> we'd start. We'd have a much better start. Um, I want to go back to the infidelity piece because there was alcoholism and there was infidelity. And like I mentioned, often those things can go hand in hand. But sometimes someone isn't an addict, but they they are unfaithful. How did you stay knowing that was happening? I didn't and then I did. So um, as you can imagine, it was a devastating, just devastating realization moment, period of time. I was in shock. I spent probably a year emotionally curled up in a ball. It did, of course, go to pretty quickly separation and divorce filings. But we got back together and the divorce proceedings were halted. And the reason those were halted is because I saw how hard he was trying Mm -hmm. to face what he had done, trying so hard to show me he could be a better man. Um, He continued in therapy after I kicked him out of the house. He didn't have to do that. You know, the drinking was covered in, in, in some regards. Obviously, you still have to fight it, but he had done that work. He didn't really have to stay in therapy to try to understand his sexual behavior. But he did that, hoping that one, not to save our marriage, but hoping that one day I would allow him back into my life. Mm-hmm. Um, and eventually I did. And it was um, a decision that was really difficult. And it stayed difficult for a very long time. Mm. We had a deep, deep, deep connection and a deep, deep, deep love. And having gone through the learning and understanding of his alcoholic behavior gave me a different understanding of the whole inside of him for the sexual behavior. Mm -hmm. And somehow I got to sort of a place where I understood that the sexual behavior was related. It mm-hmm. wasn't an addiction in the same way. The addiction maybe was to conquest. The addiction was perhaps to um, finding ways to feel validated and better about himself. It wasn't sex per se, mm-hmm. but I understood at least enough of and had gone through enough therapy by that point to try to uh, put it into some kind of framework to see if it was possible for us to uh, to have a different type of relationship. Um, granted, there were there were lots of uh, safeguards in place and postnups and lots of tough conversations. But every single time I uh, threw something at him, 
because I was conflicted. Um, this love, hate, how could he? Rejection, I need him. All of those horribly complicated emotions. It had me moments of, of lashing out. And every single time I did, he showed me he was a different, better man. He accepted his punishment. He regarded me with respect and integrity. And he, I just saw him trying so hard to show me he could be the man I deserved. Mm. Mm. So we went through a few years of trying to see if our love was in fact deep enough to try to have a different kind of relationship. And we were inching along, but then that's when COVID hit. And that's when I was really forced to see how his sexual behavior in particular and the holes inside of him had really left me with, left me empty mm -hmm. because I was still struggling not only with his behavior, but I also struggled on and off with what kind of woman am I that mm. stays with a man who has betrayed her repeatedly? Mm. And I, I, I had such moments of grappling with that. And I, I, I stayed and I left and I was on and off for a number of years in that place, wanting to believe that the depth of the love that we had felt for each other could survive what had happened. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It was what I wanted to believe and what I saw in him. But ultimately, it couldn't sustain me. Mm -hmm. The emptiness couldn't sustain me. Mm -hmm. And I had to make the, make the decision that to leave. But then I could leave without the anger. Then I was leaving for my own possible future, for my own ability to not stay that empty shell I had become. Mm -hmm. But I had to go through that. It's like I had to go through the processing inside the marriage and make every effort that I could to see if we could, we could, we could make, it, make it through this, this mm -hmm. crisis. And then I could walk away knowing we had done everything we could to try. Did you ever go through any times where you doubted your decision or you regretted it or you almost went back? Constantly. Mm -hmm. um, oh, after leaving, mm -hmm. finally, and, and very few moments. I had moments where I regretted um, as we were processing our divorce. Not the first attempt, but the real one. Um, mm -hmm. And yeah, I had moments um, of thinking, you know, I just want this man to walk in the door right now and hold me. Mm -hmm. And he would have done it. But I knew that that was a temporary moment and that it was just a little band-aid. It wasn't going to fix the big scar and the big emptiness inside mm -hmm. of me. It would make me feel better. But how long would that feel better last? It would be temporary. And so I, I had to process that and know that it, it really, I had to, I had to keep my focus not on what feels better in the moment, but for the for the hope that something better for me is coming down the road. I had to I had to hold space for me. Mm -hmm. That's so important what you just said. Because when we're in that position, we do sometimes forget that 
what we want is a Band-Aid, you know, that desire yeah. of him to come in and hold you. Um, and that would feel really good in that moment. And, but that's the cycle that so many of us can fall is. into is that that one little spring of hope keeps us in a dysfunctional, unhealthy place. And we have to look at the big picture. How long has it been now since you've been separated and divorced? Uh, our divorce uh, was finalized uh, just about two years ago. Yeah. And how is your life different? I feel like a weight is off my shoulder. Mm. The part of living with an alcoholic is this constant pressure that sometimes you don't even know is there. You're watching him. You're wondering when the next terrible thing is going to happen. You're wondering how it's all about him. It's all about the addict. Everything is about the booze. And so now out of the marriage on my own, all of the weight of that pressure, that burden, that question, it's gone. Mm. I have nothing on my shoulders but my own healing mm. and my own how do I how do I put this into perspective so I can be the best person I can be, so I can come out of something that was horribly traumatic to me and be better on the other side of it. I can use it. Mm. And that's just the most beautiful thing in the world. I don't regret being married to this man, I don't regret that I didn't leave him the minute I learned the truth of his sexual behavior because I needed that time to heal. And I don't regret the time we were together and trying to work it through, mm -hmm. nor do I regret my decision to divorce. I divorced when I needed to divorce, when I was ready to divorce, when I could process all of these emotions in a healthy way. And I have turn those things into something that makes me stronger. I know what my backbone is made out of now. Yeah. I didn't know that before. I can speak my truth now. And I don't think I, I, and I didn't do that before. And it's so important to find a way to do that, to shed the silence. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It, it is. And it doesn't mean we all have to write books and do it publicly. We just need to do it in our own lives. <laughs> Not at all. Yeah. Correct. Yeah. Correct. Find one person to talk to. Start with something. Because far too often, and I did this for so many years, I kept it inside. We're afraid of, of other people's impressions, marital loyalty, mm -hmm. um, our own vulnerability. But there is something so important and so growth-centric, I guess, mm -hmm. about Facing the vulnerability, even if it's just to one other person. Yeah. Yeah. It, vulnerability is is healing. It's it's how we free shame. And so many of us carry yeah. around so much shame and, and that just is so toxic and heavy and can spiral into all kinds of things, depression, anxiety, self-loathing, all, all kinds of, of not healthy things. As you're speaking, there's so many things I'm I'm taking away from your story. And I'd like to to sum it up. Specifically, I'd love you to speak to women who are in a relationship right now. Someone might be an addict or maybe they have, you know, serious depression. They just can't get out of something that's just really, really hard to live with, but they love this person, but they also are feeling that they're dying inside. 
and are in that conflict that you were in of, I love this person. I have compassion for this person. And what about me? Like, this isn't feeling good to me. And is it, and, and may even feel guilt for leaving because they can see their partner suffering. What would you say to them? Well, that, that guilt is, is something that uh, all too many of us know, particularly with addicts in our lives, because there is the worry. If I leave, he's going to die. And we feel, we feel responsible. I think the, and, and I don't have really good ways to do this, but, but the bottom line is find some way to have something, an individual, a therapist, a, an outside party, a fantasy, something that can hold a mirror up to ourselves. Because when we are in the middle of all of this pain and conflict and confusion, we don't see anything clearly, least of all ourselves. And the only way to get out of that is to find someone or something that can help you stand back with that mirror and say, to help you look at what your life is really like, what you were before, what you've lost. And, and if you can think about, if you feel you need to leave, Maybe it feels better to say, okay, I have to do this, but I have to do it for a short period of time. Mm -hmm. I have to step away. Maybe he will heal. Maybe I can get perspective. It doesn't have to be forever, but there there does have to be, if sometimes that it it isn't forever, is a stepping stone to something bigger. But it, it, it still comes down to that same thing. Can we find a way to have our reality reflected back at us back at us by someone or something that can give us objectivity mm. therapist friend fantasy whatever it is for you books <laughs> podcasts mm. someone that you can talk to find a way find a mirror in your life that you can step back help you step back and see your reality see what how how much of yourself you have lost mm. You mentioned some of the signs of your ex-husband's alcoholic behavior, which is secrecy, the, you know, not, not falling down drunk and getting in the car accidents, but falling asleep that way. What are some other signs that people can look out for that they might be with someone who has a functional addiction and, or someone who may be participating in infidelity? Well, there are, there are lying behaviors at as consequences or as cover for both of these things. Mm-hmm. And so that, that what, regardless of what the addiction is or regardless of the infidelity, lying is going to be part of it. And too often what we don't do is trust our instincts about when something feels off. So take mm-hmm. notes if you must. Yeah. Have a little journal circle back, question friends, does this sound legitimate to you? Even if you just have to check back and see what pattern arises through a little note on your calendar, mm-hmm. don't dismiss your instincts. Yeah. It, it may be a one-time thing. It may be nothing. But if there is a pattern, there's something there to investigate. Mm. Do not, Do not discard what your gut is telling you. That is so it's, huge. That is so huge because our intuition <laughs> and our body doesn't lie. 
Yeah. Yeah. It Did you have any, any physical? We don't always know what it means. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> Sorry to interrupt you. I'm, I'm just curious. Did you have any physical symptoms or like knots in your stomach or indigestion or headaches? Did you have any physical symptoms that were telling you, uh-oh, Dana, like there's something going on here? During the drinking, um, a general increasing stress, because mm-hmm. um, like I said, you're living with this burden all the time. Yeah. And this sense that you have to constantly be the watchdog. I'm the booze monitor, feeling like I have to keep everybody else's life together and mine is unimportant. After I found out about the infidelity, there were very serious uh, physical signs. I passed out several times. Mm-hmm. I had thyroid problems. I was losing my hair. I wasn't eating. Um, I had problems with sore throat that just I couldn't shake for months. So there were quite a number of physical symptoms for me that the stress uh, was telling my body, yeah. you've gone too far. Yeah. And this was coming after I thought that the stress, I thought that our problem was the drinking. I had all these hopes built up into uh, re- a rehab center is going to be the thing mm-hmm. only mm-hmm. to be crushed. Mm-hmm. So my body just had had enough at that point. Yeah. Yeah. I You're, was a zombie. Yeah. I can imagine. It's like that long-term chronic trauma, nothing, you know, oh my gosh, this intense super thing, like our house burned down, but the the long-term walking on eggshells, always feeling like you had a pit in your stomach, carrying around the burden of something, that really does add up. And it's so, so stressful and so hard for our nervous system to really settle and regulate and feel safe. So it made so much sense to me when you said now you feel a sense of relief and like a weight's been lifted off of you. I want to ask you about your book, Where the Shadows Dance. What can people get from this book? What I'm hoping for is that women will see parts of themselves in my story. It may not, it may be alcoholism, it may not, it may be infidelity, it may not. But I think far too many women will see two things moments where they were silent that they regret. And, and stages of time, often long ones, where everyone else's needs became more important than our own. This is what we do as women. And we put off things in our lives for someday. Someday I will go back to school. Someday we'll take a painting class. Someday I will X, 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 Y, Z. It goes on and on and on. And then you wake up one day. And you've got all this regret, things that you didn't say, things you didn't do, things that you didn't allow yourself to experience. What I'm hoping for in this book is that having found my voice, having talked about things that are really, really personal and really, really vulnerable, and being now at a place where my silence is gone, my I'm afraid to do this is gone, I am facing my vulnerability. And it is the toughest thing I've ever done. This book is the most vulnerable thing I've ever done. And I believe it's going to be the most important thing I've ever done. Mm. Whatever vulnerability and fears you have inside you as a woman, it doesn't have to mean writing a book. But I want women to see that 
if they can face one little bit of this, it won't destroy them. It, it, it can make you better. It can make you stronger. It can give you a perspective that, yeah, maybe I can do this. Maybe there's more ahead of me. And, and we've got so much life ahead of us. We've got so much we can do. Women are just amazing individuals, amazing creatures. We go on and on and on. We've got, you know, so much of life ahead of us and so much to give that I want women to feel that. If I can, if I can be a tiny factor, I'm thrilled. Mm-hmm. Well, like I said to you before we started recording, I just want to deeply acknowledge you for writing this book because it took a lot of bravery and a lot of courage. And we need we need other people to be sharing their stories so we don't feel alone. And so that we can also know that if someone else like me can do it, then then I can do it. So thank you. I know that you know, you usually write fiction books. So to to cross over and write a nonfiction, especially <laughs> about your own life, is is speaking another language. So you're a very brave woman, Dana. First is the way that you Thank walk you through so the much. marriage with so much love and and leaving, um, choosing to to choose yourself and then putting this book out. And yeah, just really deeply acknowledge you. Thank you so much, Christine. I'm uh... I know you've that you are the same, and uh, that there are lots of women out there who, who, are wonderful, amazing creatures, and we all just want to be better than we are, and we can. Yeah, and we deserve it. And we deserve it, no question. Mm-hmm. 